Thank you, choir, orchestra, and for the time of worship we've had through song, and I rejoice in the baptism today, and so that was a great moment, and I think we have others coming at the end of the month to baptize. We just continue to pray for the Lord to do his work among us as we faithfully share the gospel on campus, off campus, and throughout the region where he allows us to meet with folks. Father, bless now your word. Thank you for having the Bible in our language. We pray that you would help us to hear you speak, Lord, through the scripture now and give us receptive hearts and, uh, Lord, minds that are willing to hear what you have to say and wills that bow to you, that you might be glorified in our lives. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> A few years ago, I think it was three years ago, it was the year before the pandemic, I was privileged to travel to um, Israel with a group of folks from our church. First time I'd ever been, and it was an incredible opportunity that I will never forget. And while we were in Bethlehem, which is controlled by the Palestinian authorities, you had to go through a lot of checkpoints just to get into Bethlehem, uh, we were able to visit a, a gift store, a souvenir shop. And so when we arrived, the owners gathered us all together in our group, and they wanted to speak to the entire group and tell us what their store offered. And then they presented to me, uh, the pastor, um, this carving of Jesus the shepherd made out of olive wood, and it was very beautiful. And um, of course, that goodwill act, I'm sure, was to help encourage others in our group to purchase these items in the store, but nevertheless, it was very gracious and very thankful for it. Now, I don't have any other statues in my home. That's a picture, I think, from that actual bookstore or some of the other stuff they have or a gift store. I don't have any other statues in my home of anyone except at Christmas. Uh, we have a few nativity sets, so this is about the only Jesus statue I have. Now, for some believers in history, they might would have had a crisis of conscience receiving something like this, much less displaying it in their home. And the reason that would be true is in relationship to the text we come to in our series this morning, True Lines. This is message 22 in this uh, series, and right now we are looking at some of the instructions and commands in Scripture regarding how we're to live as believers. So we're uh, not going to recap everything that we've done over those past 22 messages, but right now we've come to the point of God's grace and salvation, and now that we're saved, God's new people, how are we to live? And so I'm hitting some of the high points in the scripture, uh, telling us how we're to live as believers. We've experienced the grace of God, we're now part of the family of God, and now we're to grow up to reflect the character of God. And we do that by the power of God's Spirit working within us. He is transforming us in our minds and our hearts and our wills to grow into maturity in Christ and also to grow in our submission to Christ and His Lordship. And one way the Spirit works toward this end is through commands, commanding things that we're to do and not to do. And as we learn to obey and trust God, by His power, we are through that process increasingly changed back toward perfect humanity. And remember, perfect humanity was to be perfectly related to God and submission to God, honoring God, following the Lord, which our ancestors failed to do in the garden. 
Now, in the time in which we can devote to this, again, I'm only focusing upon some central things. Right now, we're going to make our way through the Ten Commandments. And we're looking at the two great commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. And all the law is contained within those two things. We're going to flesh some of that out as well in the New Testament when it talks about how do we love each other, love our neighbor, all those things. The two tables of the law of the Ten Commandments reflect those things. And so last week we got started looking at the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words. And this morning I invite you to continue to explore these with me. Last week we looked at the first one. Today we're going to look at the second. The second, the message is entitled, The Matter of Images. So I want to read a few passages with you. If you would follow along, we're primarily going to be looking at Exodus 20, but we'll go into the New Testament. So find Exodus 20 and keep your finger there. We'll be going back to it as we go through this message. Exodus 20, verse 1. And the Lord, or God, spoke all these words. It's literally the ten words, not ten commandments in that way, but they are ultimately commandments. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. That's what we looked at last week. Now today, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Then in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, where Paul is talking about how the gospel came to this city, and his involvement in that, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10, Paul says, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. And then one other passage in Acts 17 where we see Paul in Athens on Mars Hill. In Acts 17, 16, it says, While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Picking up in verse 22, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what... I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. 
From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own prophets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Last week we spent time seeking to understand the command of God that we have nothing else before him. That is, there be no rivals to God in our lives. We worship no one or no thing, only God alone. Then, somewhat related to this, is the fact that God tells us as his people that we are never to depict God in the form of an idol or a graven image. And this is a command that is not just for us. It is a command for the whole world. The whole world is called never to depict God, the Father, in the form of an idol or a graven image. And so, how are we to understand this text and apply it to our lives living thousands of years beyond the lives of the Israelites. Well, first of all, let's talk about the guidance that is here. What are we being called not to do and to do in this command that is certainly reiterated in the New Testament as we read? Well, we are called to not use anything in any part of creation. So you'll notice in verse 4, if you go back to Exodus 20, how he, he gets to the details. He says, anything in creation in heaven above, on earth beneath, or in the waters below. We're not to pull anything out of anywhere in creation to depict God the Father in the form of an image. Now the ancient world, as our world today, was full of images of what people thought of as God or gods. I mentioned last week the world's largest idol found on an African island in the Indian Ocean, southeast of the continent of Africa. Started in 2011, it's the world's biggest idol that is there of a Hindu goddess. And when the Jews were in Egypt, they were surrounded by idols, were they not? When God brought them up out of Egypt and led them into the promised land, they were surrounded again by idols. These idols often had to do with matters of blessing in relationship to fertility or their crops, reproduction, those kinds of things. These idols, these gods and goddesses, they were territorial in nature. And broadly, these systems of religion worked in this way. According to scholars, the ancient people of the world believed that the presence of a god or a goddess was guaranteed by the presence of the idol. And so the idol partook of the nature of the god it was representing. And so the idea is that a god or a statue would be made and rituals and incantations would be done around the statue, and it would cause the essence of the God to enter it. And so if you think about um, a text, I don't have time to read, but go to 1 Kings 18 where Elijah takes on the priest of Baal, right? And he mocks them for dancing around it, tells them to keep calling on your God. Maybe he's asleep. He tells them, do your incantations, all this kind of stuff. 
Well, that was the idea that we can do these things in the presence, the essence of the God would enter the statue. So the statue was a conduit to the God, and anything the worshiper did in the presence was transferred to the God. So think about people today sending a, um, you know, a video from far away, believing that the words and the actions will be received by the person to whom it is sent. So it's like you're acting before the God, and the conduit goes to the God through the idol. And it receives what you're sending to it. Or if you think about um, voodoo practices in some parts of the world. They make a voodoo doll of you and they start sticking pins in it, right? And they believe there's transference from what's taking place in the little idol, the little, the little uh, doll, to you. To throw a curse on you, to bring harm to you. Well, that's the kind of thing that's that's going on. And furthermore, when a person had sexual relations with a temple priestess near, say, the idol of Baal, the man would be acting as Baal, the woman as uh, Asherah, and that action would translate to Baal and Asherah in heaven where they happen to be and remind them to have sexual relations and so that they would do that and the world would be blessed, right, in fertility with animals and plants, thus replenishing life. The gods that they worshipped in themselves could do anything except feed themselves. And thus the leverage one had over the gods was found in making offerings of food or meat. It was sort of a quid pro quo. Take care of the god or the goddess and the god or the goddess was required to take care of you by making your animals multiply or your crops be abundant. And so you think about when the Israelites went into uh, the promised land, for instance, and they might have come upon a Canaanite farmer and said, hey, what are your, what's your methods around here for having the best crops, right? Well, the Canaanite farmer probably began by telling them about the sacrifices to the gods, right? Or the sexual relations before the gods. That's what they would tell them to do. And so that was tied up in the very... Uh, crucible of life, of food and animals and those things. But the only thing the gods couldn't do was feed themselves. And so you had leverage over them. So feed the gods, the gods will feed you. Now if you go back to Acts 17, you hear the Apostle Paul alluding to this when he's speaking in Athens, the most educated city in the ancient world, but they had gods and goddesses everywhere. You still go to the ruins today and see the remnants of some of that. And so in Acts 17, in verse... uh, 29, Paul says that uh, since we're God's offspring, we should not think the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. But if you go back to verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by human hands. And listen, and he is not what? Served by human hands as if he needed anything. Your gods and goddesses, you serve them and feed them because they can't feed themselves. But as you do that, there's quid pro quo and they take care of you. Take care of the God, the God will take care of you. But the true God, the true and living God, Paul begins to teach them is not just some local deity. He is not contained in a building or a shrine. He does not need anything for he has made all things. He is not served by human hands. But in their minds, the pagans' minds, the gods needed to be fed. And so as you went in the ancient world, there were shrines everywhere. 
Remember God told the Israelites, tear down all these shrines throughout your land. When you would have a reform movement in Israel. They had all these shrines. And so that made it convenient to do something to feed the gods or to make an offering to a god so you could get a blessing. But that didn't affect how you lived in your ethics. It simply was a transaction, quid pro quo. I can give the god or goddess this. They're going to bless me in this way. It doesn't really matter how I live, right? And so it's just, uh, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Now, an expression I think that is similar, and I don't want to get down this uh, rabbit trail today, but, but I think a similar expression today is seen in fringe, quote-unquote, Christianity, particularly in the word faith movement where the idea is sow your seed, right, in faith, bless God in this way, and trust God in this way, and he is bound and he's obligated to return this to you. Quid pro quo. Scratch his back, he'll scratch yours. That is not Christianity, by the way, although it is often called Christianity in our culture, and it causes a lot of damage in places like Africa among the Christian movement. So now, as we're learning about the true God here, the true God of the universe, he begins to reveal himself as distinct from all of those idols. That's why the Old Testament's written in many ways the way it's written. God is showing who he is in contrast to the idols and the false gods around. Those idols are nothing. God is a personal God who shows up to claim a people for himself. And so if you go back to Exodus chapter 20, verse 2, remember what we found before God ever gave the first command. What did he say? Exodus 20, in verse 2, what does it say? Don't miss this part. It's very important. And the God, God spoke all these words, and he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. God reminds them that he claimed them as his own, set his heart upon them. He uses imagery in the Old Testament to talk about that. He saved them by his grace. They didn't offer him anything. But God says, I came along and he says, I found you like an unwanted baby covered in blood on the side of the road. And I took you and washed you and adopted you as my child. That's one image he uses in the Old Testament. And now he says, now that you're my children... You need to honor me and live in this way. And in this, he's beginning to restore the creation. And it does affect our ethics. Now, this claim here where we see God saying that I called you and um, I'm the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. In ancient law codes, this is sometimes called a Hesiod relationship. Related to the idea of mercy. God has shown mercy to us that is unsurpassed. And that cannot be ignored in our lives. And so we're to live in permanent gratitude to Him and to be loyal to Him. There is no other God like Him. He's the one true and living God that doesn't need to be served for quid pro quo for Him to do something. No, He's the God who is the one true and living God who sets His heart upon a people to save them by His grace and to bring them into relationship with Him. And He rescues us, not in response to some act we've done for Him, but out of His grace. And so this is no quid pro quo. You scratch my back, I scratch yours. No, this is grace given and a life of thankfulness as the right response. He truly is the song, as we were singing a bit ago, that He is the promise keeper. 
He's entered into a relationship with us, and he keeps his promises to us in grace. And so that thankfulness by which I live now before him means there are no other gods before him. That's why Jesus said, you cannot love your family more than me, right? Nothing before me. And then further, since God is spirit and is not contained by any created thing, I should never seek to depict him in the form of an idol made out of any part of creation. This was true for them. And it was God's call to believers in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 14, Paul writing to believers living there who were still surrounded by all these things. He said, therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. It's God's call to us today, and it's God's call to the whole world. Idols are not to be made. Statues depicting God the Father. Now, what is the reason for this? Why is God bothered by this? Why is God concerned about this in our lives? Well, he tells us the reason right here in the text. You know, God called them to be loyal, and it was a loyalty that appeared strange to the world around them. A world that was full of idols, the Jews were saying there's only one true God. A world full of statues, the Jews were saying you should never make a statue of the Father. That's what he teaches us. The Israelites said the true God was universal, and refused to be seen or depicted in idols or contained in shrines. Well, why did God tell them to do this? Well, look at verse 5, Exodus 20. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. There's the reason. God says, you're not to do this because I am a jealous God. Or some translations use the word zealous God. The point that God is making here is that he is the one true pure God and he is jealous or he is zealous over his own honor, his own being. Whereas our jealousy is never pure, his is pure. And it is right. And it is, uh, it is right because his nature is never to be misrepresented, his true nature. Idols demean God because no idol can capture who he is, and they distort who he is to the world. So think about how offended you would be if someone took your picture or your identity, and they used it to uh, distort who you are on social media. That sometimes happens to people, right? My account got hacked. Somebody put up pictures of me or things I said that I did not say. And when that happens to you, it makes you angry because somebody's misrepresenting you in your life. Or just think of somebody misrepresenting your character and nature by presenting some distorted picture or story about you and telling everyone this is what you're really like, but it's a lie. Well, how much more offensive is it to God who is perfect for someone, right, to point to some idol, some false faith, and say, this is who God is. That is offensive to God because it's misrepresenting Him. And He's right, just, 
to be jealous over his nature. There's no one higher than him. His character, furthermore, as we read the text, God's character is pure and it does not change. He's not going to change from one generation to the next. And that helps explain the parts of these verses in verses 5 and 6 that sometimes upset people. Where you read things, you shall not bow down to them. I'm the Lord your God. I'm a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me and showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You ever been doing your daily devotion? You come to that one and say, what in the world? <laughs> what is he saying here? Well, we know that God is not saying that um, one generation is promised or one man uh, punished for his father's sins, nor the father for the children's sins. I mean, in this same law, if you go to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 24 and verse 16, right out, the Bible says here, Moses, same writer, parents are not to be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their parents. Each will die for their own sin. So I'm not being punished of the third and fourth generation for what somebody did before me in a previous generation. That's not the point. The point is that God is saying here every generation that continues to turn to idols and distorts God, rebels against God, they'll continue to experience His wrath. And the parents do influence the children often in that way. But God's not going to change, right? It was in your generation, you're under the wrath of God. You go three or four generations down, you keep making idols, turning away from me. My wrath will still rest upon you. God does not change. It's the same thing you find in, in the Gospel of John. Chapter 3, we have John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever, what? Trust in him. Should not perish, but have everlasting life. God offers us eternal life as a gift. But in John chapter 3, in verse uh, 36 and 7, it says, uh, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. God loves them. God often does good things for them, but they're under His wrath. That's the point that's being made where God says, I will visit this to the third and fourth generation. I'm not changing but it is not God's desire to do that. He wants to bless greatly those who will turn to Him. And so you'll notice the contrast in the text. If you go back to Exodus chapter 20, He talks about to the third and fourth generation. But then He says that I want to show love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. It's an unlimited number. A big distinction is being made. A contrast is being made. God's heart is magnanimous. And he desires to save and for people not to live under his wrath. And so the idea is that we're not to make images of him, to distort him. And we're to worship the true and living God who desires for us to follow him. If you do not, he does not change. He loves you, but you live under his wrath. Because he cannot do otherwise, he will uphold. He will uphold, right? His character, who he is as the ruler of the universe. And then thirdly, how do we apply this to us today? What is some direction for us? Is God's people on the earth today, his church, his family, what's the direction for us from this command? We live in a somewhat different world than even the New Testament 
lived in as far as like, um, I mean, you didn't drive into Anderson this morning and find all kinds of temples to gods and goddesses full of statues, did you? I did not see that. You find some of those things in some of our cities, but you don't find that so much everywhere in the culture like they, they did. So how do we apply this? Well, here's how this applies to us. A few things, I'll wrap this up. One, we must be prepared to assert the one true God and his plan for the world. And it was a lot of pressure on the Jews to not affirm the one true God and to not make idols. And some of them failed in that. But our calling is that, no, we are to affirm that there is one true and living God and he has a plan for the world. Paul did that in his Mars Hill speech. He begins talking about the God who created all things, who doesn't need anything. So he rightly defined who God is. And then he talked about what God was wanting to do, and he closes out his speech before they shut him down, talking about the incarnation of God in Jesus and the resurrection, calling them to come to Christ. In a pluralistic world, as the Jews lived in, as well as the early church, and we live in a pluralistic world. Maybe we don't have idols everywhere in buildings around us. But when we proclaim this truth that there is one God and one way to relate to him ultimately, we're not going to be approved by the world. And we must get used to that as the church. This will bring displeasure from the world when you take this stand. The early Christians were called atheists because they would not worship the gods and the idols of the empire. And you and I will recall things as well when we say there is one true and living God that we worship and that we serve. We'll be seen as arrogant and narrow-minded, but we must assert that truth. It's capsulated for us in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verses 5 and 6. Paul put it this way. 1 Timothy 2, verses 5 and 6, he says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. And so as we witness to our friends and our neighbors, we must assert, beginning sometimes within our culture today, with the Creator God, we must assert who He is, His nature, the gospel that's been given in Christ the mediation between man and God through Christ Jesus, and also the coming wrath of God, and the call to lay down all idols and follow Him alone. I want you to know that the hope of your friends and your neighbors and your countrymen and your family that doesn't know Jesus, the hope for them in this culture, their hope is found in a, a minority of people Right? We're the only hope they have in some sense. Their hope is in our faithfulness to the truth. And to keep proclaiming the truth. Living by the truth. Sacrificing for the truth. That there is one true and living God. Don't make idols of Him. Don't worship anybody else. And if you want to relate to Him, you relate to Him through Jesus Christ. Secondly, while we respect and defend people's right to worship as they wish, and that's part of our Baptist tradition. We respect them as our neighbors. We fight for their right if they want to build a mosque in town or whatever. They have that right under our First Amendment to worship how they want. 
But we are not ever called to quote-unquote honor other faiths as being noble. We are not to see images in other faiths as some innocuous sign of people seeking after God. The text has just said it shows people rebelling against God. That's what Paul says in Romans 1. And to honor that would be to dishonor God, who says that he is to have no rivals and people are not to make any idols. And we hear this sentiment again in Paul's experience on, on, on Mars Hill. Acts 17, 16, it says, while he was standing there in their city, it says that he was moved inside. Literally, it says in a sense, he was nauseated when he saw all of the idols in Athens. That's how Paul felt inside toward what he was seeing and the ignorance around him. He even says in 1 Corinthians, and just for time's sake, I'm not going to turn and read it, but in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 14 where he said, run away from idols, he goes on to tell them, quit going to these temples of the idols and eating there. He says, because their sacrifices, he says, are to demons. They're to fallen angels, demonic. Now, while in public discussion with them, you know, Paul was wise in how he approached it. When he talked to those guys on Mars Hill, he didn't say, you know, you're a bunch of pagan idol worshipers and you're on your way to hell. That was true. But he spoke to them right with respect and said, I see you're a very religious people, right? And there's even a, a, a shrine here to the unknown God. And he said, what you've worshipped in ignorance, I'm going to tell you the truth. And I want you to know God ultimately has commanded you to turn from this ignorance to serve Him alone. And so he was wise. He spoke of their ignorance. He did not bash them. Nevertheless, in his heart, he would never have honored these idols. And that would prohibit us, in my understanding, me as a Christian, and as a pastor who sometimes might be put in these types of positions, as an evangelical Christian pastor, this would prohibit me, in my understanding, from participating in quote-unquote interfaith services with non-believers. Even in times of national crises and memories. Back in 2011, there was the 10-year anniversary of 9-11. There was an interfaith memorial prayer service at the National Cathedral in D.C. that uh, the Episcopalians oversee. President Obama was in power. And when they had that national prayer service, no Southern Baptists or Evangelicals were invited to participate in the prayer service. And ironically, some of our Southern Baptist leaders expressed their dissatisfaction with this. And they took it as a slight that they were not invited. But in my mind, and in the mind of, I think, most of our people, they should not have wanted to be part of that event. An event that featured a rabbi, a Buddhist nun, an incarnate lama, a Hindu priest, the president of the Islamic Society of North America, and a Muslim musician. We're not to venerate idols or promote others who do or who preach false messages about God. And this is tied to the fact that even if in our minds we're not to picture God the Father in some created construct, not even in our minds, He is spirit. So we should not ever promote others whose words and idols misrepresent who the Father is. That is why Paul told the believers to stop going to the pagan temple restaurants. Every idol temple had basically a little restaurant in it, a little eating room. And you could go there and eat meat and um, have been sacrificed to the idols and have a 
Night out with your sweetheart with candles for Valentine's. You could go to the idol temple and do that. Now the pagans, when they went, they would gorge themselves because the more you eat, the more you bless, the, the more the God gets full, right? And you get drunk. The more you get drunk, the more you're giving the God something to drink. But Paul tells the believers, you need to stop going up there. In 1 Corinthians 8, again, I don't have time to read it. It'll be on the PowerPoint. The danger was that if you do that, you're going you're to hurt some Christians who may not have gotten all this put together in their minds, and their minds are going to be shaped in the wrong way. This, this might... Finally, though, I want to say this, an application about this point. This command might bring some of you who are in international business into some conflict at times because... You may be in some international businesses in which the business practices are somehow tied to the local religions that are tied to idolatry. And you may have to say in those situations, I cannot participate in this. This blessing of the cars or the blessing of the factory, that kind of thing. And you may have to conscientiously say, I can't do that. It may cost you your job. And finally, in wrapping up, let me just say this, because I brought this up on the platform today. Can't leave you hanging. <laughs> this command does not prohibit art depicting creation, as some might make it. Verse 4, he talks about don't take anything out of heaven or earth or the water to make anything in verse 4. And some people say, well, he says don't make anything there, but no point. The point is made in verse 5. You're not to make something you're going to bow down to. And uh, as, a, as an image of the Father, the Spirit. He isn't saying you can't make art out of things in creation. And so right there in the text, you'll recall in uh, Exodus 25, again for time's sake, I'm just going to move on, but in Exodus 25, remember when they were constructing the tabernacle, they made uh, things with look like almond blossoms, remember that? And when they made the Holy of Holies and the mercy seat, what was on top of it? Who what? Angels, right, in their wings. So they were made and depicted. So there's nothing inherently wrong with making things artistically out of creation. That's not what God is prohibiting. Nor does this command prohibit us from depicting Christ in pictures or making little wooden things. If it does, we need to take out all these expensive windows. Which are kind of an anomaly in some way in Baptist life. You don't see a lot of this in a lot of Baptist churches. But we're not, I think, prohibited from having that. If we are, I need to burn this on the stage, throw away all our nativity sets with baby Jesus, and rip out these windows that we had to spend $150,000 on a few years ago because they were leaking. It was a great, it was a great moment. <laughs> You see, God told the Israelites to avoid images because as Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 4.15, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, don't make anything that's a form. But this does not apply, obviously, to Jesus, Christian theologians would argue today, who people did see in human form, right? It's not wrong to think about and have mental images of Jesus bodily. In fact, we are told to think of him in terms of mental images, like in Hebrews chapter 4, which says, we do not have a high priest, who cannot be touched with what the things we go through, but we have one just like us who can be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. Jesus still has a body today. He will return bodily. 
plus in God's creation, the one part of creation he created to represent himself. What did God create to represent himself on the earth? Mankind. In the image of what? God, he made them. Male and female, he created them. We are to be the image bearers of God. But we fell into sin, and so no human can bear God's image fully anymore in the right way. But Jesus, the God-man, can and does. And so how he is depicted in the New Testament, I think it's okay to depict him in drawings. We have him in Sunday school literature for our children and their pictures, children, Bible story, books, and art. We're not sinning in doing that. He is the genuinely perfect man. We do not venerate or worship the art or see it as fully depicting everything about his character and purpose, but it can be used without violating this commandment. So I'm keeping my statue. It's not going away. I hope this helps you think about this text and think about certain applications of it even down to today.